In August of last year, I paused at the end of Matthew 13. This was back in August. We stopped. We was preaching through Matthew, and I stopped to, to preach a couple weeks on church membership. That stretched into 18 weeks, got a little bit larger than what I had planned. And of course, we'll be coming back to that theme, especially as we get to Matthew 16 and 18, we'll, which deals with the church and church discipline and other issues. We'll uh, talk about that in the near future. But I want us to return this morning to Matthew's gospel. Uh, this is the gospel of the king and the kingdom. Uh, Matthew writing to a Jewish audience introducing the Messiah. In January through August of last year, we had looked at Matthew 11, 12, and 13. Just to remind you, Matthew 11 spoke of the majesty of Christ. Matthew 12 highlighted the character, the particular character of our Lord in contrast to His enemies. And then if you remember, Matthew 13 focused on Jesus' parables, especially the kingdom parables. We also saw a major shift in the teaching ministry of Jesus. The crowds are rejecting Christ more rapidly, more intensely, more deliberately. They are rejecting Jesus' public ministry. The Pharisees, of course, are rejecting. But even the crowds that were following Jesus are now beginning to reject Him. They appear on the surface to be true disciples, but we're beginning to see where they really are not. And again, the theme of this gospel is the kingdom of heaven, but we're focusing specifically on the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ. And Matthew presents him as that, Jesus Christ, king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. You do not need to be Jewish to know that Jesus Christ is Savior and that He's King. I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile, but thank God because of grace, I know that He's King. I know that He's Savior. I know that He's Messiah. This Jesus, the worker of miracles, the lover of people, the preacher of truth, the one who makes disciples and men who will follow Him. In the latter part of chapter 13, just before I read chapter 14, we, we saw that the kingdom of our Lord spreads like a mustard seed. It's also, Matthew tells us through Jesus' teaching, that the kingdom is like leaven. It starts in a little place, and then it moves all the way through everything. It advances, it grows, it spreads. That's how the kingdom of heaven operates. That's how God's kingdom is. That's how it advances in this world, which is totally different than what men perceive and how men think. This morning we come to chapter 14 of Matthew, where the first 12 verses record what most of us consider to be a horrible story. It is a very sad story and one sense of the word, because it records for us the murder, the beheading of John the Baptist. But still, even in this story, Matthew is telling us, and our Lord is telling us 
how the kingdom of God advances. It doesn't advance in ways that we think sometimes. Sometimes it advances through suffering and persecution. And in this text is exactly that. It looks like a tragedy has occurred here, and yet in the midst of this, the kingdom of heaven is still advancing. It's still moving toward that goal, that point that Christ has promised in His Word. Follow with me as I read this story that you've heard often in Sunday school and probably preached many times from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, parallel story in Mark 6, but chapter 14 of Matthew, verse 1. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now what, John, what Matthew does here, now he takes us back in retrospect, and he's telling us the story that makes up what he's just said. In verse 3, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. The king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Herod, Herodias, her daughter, servants, John the Baptist, Jesus, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God, all of these things are present in the text that I have read this morning. Simply stated, the first 12 verses record the history of the death of John the Baptist. This is how John the Baptist, the servant of God, the prophet of God, the preacher, the one that Jesus cared deeply for, this is how he exited this world. This is how he was rewarded in this world for his faithfulness to proclaim biblical truth and to preach the Word of God. When you come to Matthew 14, in the midst of the disappointments of the crowds that I just mentioned in the previous chapters, 11, 12, and 13, the crowds are increasingly rejecting the Son of God, the miracle worker, the one who has helped them and healed them and taught them and loved them and shown compassion toward them. They now 
repeatedly and increasingly they reject the Son of God. And here in chapter 14, we narrow down the focus and we see how an individual, Herod, we see how his wife, uh, Herodias, and her daughter, we see, we see ungodliness and iniquity in a closer light, and how men and women are rejecting the Word of God and they are rejecting the truth of Almighty God. But then if you'll look at verse number 13, after Jesus has received word that John Baptist has been beheaded. He says that when he heard of it, he departed by ship into a desert place. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him. Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, was moved with compassion. He heals their sick. And then the remaining of the chapter that we'll look at in the weeks ahead, Jesus continues to love them. He continues to have compassion upon them, and He continues to work miracles on their behalf. So in the midst of all the rejection and the hatred, and people turning away from the message of the kingdom and their refusal to repent, Jesus does and continues to do what He was sent here to do, and that is to point men to the saving grace of God. In the face of all this rejection... Jesus shows love and shows compassion. There's four overall truths that I want to mention just by way of introduction in this 14th chapter, especially in the first 12 verses that are in this text. I just want to mention these. Number one, in the text, people are disappointed. They're disappointed with Jesus. Herod was curious about Him, but overall, Herod is disappointed with Jesus. Naturally, his wife Herodias and her daughter hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist preached repentance of the kingdom, but there are people today who are still disappointed with the biblical Jesus. He is not the kind of Savior that they want Him to be. Number two in this text this morning is the martyrdom, the death of one of God's servants, and I just want to remind all of us here today, it's not something that makes the news, but martyrdom of believers, believers dying, believers being killed, is still going on today. And it is increasing as the kingdom of God advances. I could give you statistics, but statistics are just that. They're just statistics. But there are people martyred every day around the world because they are a Christian, and like John the Baptist, because they preach the kingdom of heaven. Number three, you and I are living for one kingdom or the other. In this text, we have Herod living for his own kingdom, the kingdom of this world, doing everything he does, making every decision he makes based on his kingdom on this earth. It tells us in the text that he liked John the Baptist and would like to have spared him. He feels sorry for him in a certain way, but he's made a promise to this girl that danced for him, and he's got to keep his promise, and because he's got political peers that are sitting there watching him, so he lives and makes his decisions based on the kingdom of this world. But then in this story, we also have John the Baptist who is making his decisions on the kingdom of heaven. 
The same is true here today. Every one of us is living for one kingdom or the other. You're living for this world's kingdom or you're living for the kingdom of Christ. And number four, in spite of the multitudes and rejections that I mentioned a while ago, our Lord still shows compassion. Those, those things are still operative in the world in which we live. Several characters emerge in these 12 verses. You have Herod the king. You have Herod's servants. You have John the Baptist. You've got Herod's brother Philip that's mentioned in the text. Herod's sister-in-law, Herodias, is mentioned in the text. And then her daughter, the daughter of Herodias, is mentioned in the text. And the disciples of John the Baptist. And of course, our Lord is mentioned when they take John's body or and go and bury it and then tell Jesus about the way that John has left. But clearly, Herod and John are the focal points of this passage. They're the ones that we see. They're the ones that rise to the surface. Herod lives. John dies. Herod this morning's in hell. John's in heaven. Herod makes decisions that are popular and decisions that are approved by the kingdom in which he lives. And he is glorified for that. And yet he loses all in eternity. John makes decisions to stay true to the Word of God and to preach the Word of God. And for that, he is imprisoned. And for that, he ultimately dies. So let's look at the text in relation to how the kingdom of God continues to move forward even in a world that rejects that king and that kingdom. You can't just look at the world on the surface and conclude that the kingdom of Christ is not advancing because of what you see on the surface. In this story, it looks like that everything righteous, everything good, everything that should be has been turned upside down, and it looks like the kingdom is stopping right there with the death of John the Baptist. But we all know that's not the case. Look with me at Herod, a man who lived and a man who died for his own kingdom. Matthew introduces us in verse 1, and he says at this time, in a time when there were mighty works, and Jesus could not do other works because of men's unbelief, at that particular time in the ministry of Christ, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. If you have Herod defined in the margins of your Bible, you probably got more information about Herod than you do margins of your Bible because keeping up and keeping up with the track of the family tree of Herod is difficult for the greatest Bible student. It might be easier to remember which Herod is who by remembering this. Herod the Great is the one who murdered the infants when Jesus arrived. Herod Antipas that we're talking about here today is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And Herod Agrippa is the one who killed James and put Peter in prison in the book of Acts. The Herod we're looking at here is Herod Antipas. He rules over Galilee, the territory where Jesus carried out much of his ministry. So it's just natural that as Matthew tells us in verse 1 that he had heard of Jesus. He's also heard of Jesus through the preaching of the twelve that our Lord had sent forth. He obviously has heard through the preaching of John Baptist, 
more than just the fact that he's an adulterer. He's heard more. So he has heard, and he's trying to respond to the news of this man Jesus. Now Herod was a very superstitious man. You have to be superstitious to believe when you hear somebody that you believe he's somebody else that has been raised from the dead. He's very superstitious, and he feared John the Baptist so much that he's afraid that John that he had beheaded has risen from the dead maybe and come back to settle the score. Herod hears that report about this individual doing miracles, and he concludes he's John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. I don't know how Herod's connecting miracles with John the Baptist, but he's so afraid of John the Baptist that he's probably imagining a lot of things and speculating about who he is. Verse 2, Herod said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. This is what the Bible says. Isn't that how your Bible reads there? And he, he spoke to his servants. Herod turned to his servants when he heard of Jesus and said, I know who this man is. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And because of that, mighty works are showing themselves in him. He's John the Baptist. He's, he's risen from the dead. This is not an opinion that Herod has. This is a decision that Herod has made in his conscience. He has come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is just John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now this may seem insignificant to you this morning, but it's a reminder to all of us that somewhere in your life you are going to have to come to a conclusion about who Jesus really is. And you can speculate and you can be superstitious and you can label Him and you can tag Him with whatever you want to do with Him, but you're going to have to come to a decision at some point in your life about who this Jesus is. This is crucial for Herod, for he concludes that he is John the Baptist. And we can fast forward. I don't want to go there and read because that's not my purpose this morning. But if you want to fast forward over into Luke's gospel, this same Herod will be the Herod that Pontius Pilate will send Jesus to. And when Jesus arrives there in front of Herod, Herod basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, man, this is a dream come true. I've longed to see you. I've heard about you. And he's still this superstitious religious man. And he said, I've heard about you. I want to know everything about you. Luke tells us that our Lord answered not a word. You may get to that point and there be no conversation. But every one of us in life will have to come to a conclusion about who Christ is. As these children sang this morning about Christ and about trust and about even the character of David, they were singing about the things that they've been taught, the things that they have heard in the Word of God. They are basically singing their parents' convictions. That's what they are doing. They've, they are singing about what they have been taught. At some point in every one of them's life, they will have to understand it's got to be more than my parents' conviction. It's got to be more than my church's conviction. It's got to be who Jesus is based upon the Word of God. 
Sometimes we look at young people who make professions of faith early in life, and some of those professions of faith are based entirely upon their parents' convictions, and we're supposed to teach them truth, and we're supposed to teach them what is right. Maybe it's based upon their school's traditions or whatever. And then they get older in life, and they, for whatever reason, come to the conclusion, I don't hold those same traditions. I don't hold those same conclusions. They'll have to come to that on their own by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where Herod is as a king, as a ruler. Instead of saying, this is the Messiah, this is the promised Son of God, he said, no, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Who do you think he is this morning? Is he, the, is he the conservative man's Jesus? Is he the southern Jesus of those raised in the south? Is he just an Americanized Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He's the king. This is his kingdom. And Herod is missing it. Now in verses 3 through 11, Matthew recounts how all of this unfolded. If you've ever seen a documentary or a television program where it starts out in the opening minute or two, uh, someone is sitting there saying something, then the screen fades, and it takes you back, and it says below 50 years before, and they go back and bring you up to that point that they introduced you with. Well, that didn't originate in Hollywood. That originated in Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew does the same thing. He sets Herod out there. He tells you what Herod believes, and now he takes you all the way back to when Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. He tells us that in verses 3 through verse number 11. Herod had John the Baptist killed, had his head delivered on a platter. Herod is living in his kingdom in unrepentant guilt. He knew, Herod knew, John preached to Herod the law of Leviticus and the law of Deuteronomy that his incestuous and adulterous relationship with Herodias was a sin. And he did not preach that once. If you look at the language of the text, when it says that there, that he had uh, put him in prison for his brother, it said, for, he, for John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. John didn't just tell him that one time and walk away. John continually said to Herod, you are wrong and you're living in sin because of this relationship. I don't know. Let me try for a moment to just briefly explain this bizarre relationship of Herod's family and the effect that it had upon everyone. Herodias, in the text, that's Herod's wife, had married her half-uncle, a man named Herod Philip, who is just called Philip in the text. She had given birth to a daughter by him. The daughter is the one who is dancing in this passage at the birthday party. History tells us that the daughter of Herodias would herself later marry her half-uncle. Thus, she would become her mother's sister-in-law and aunt. If you think that's bizarre, we have situations in our day that's even more bizarre. But this daughter here, and you can see how this sinful lifestyle of Herod is having an effect upon the next generation. As a pastor, I have heard people try to explain their way out and say, Preacher, 
My situation doesn't hurt anybody. When you have any relationship that's outside the boundaries of God's Word, you hurt everybody. Mark that down. I don't care whether it's you, me, or who it is. When we do anything outside the boundaries of God's Word, we hurt everyone in the long run. Herod, on a visit to his brother, Herod Philip, had met Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. He became infatuated with her, to say the least. She became infatuated with him. He divorced his wife. She divorced her husband. They married. And Herod is involved now in an adulterous affair, making him also involved in an incestuous affair because of the kinship. And both the book of Leviticus and the Ten Commandments condemned Herod for what he had done. And thank God for John the Baptist who told him that. That he was in sin. You said, well, why did John pick on that? A man's never going to come to Christ and know that he needs to be forgiven for sin until his sin has been revealed. And John the Baptist preached that sin. Herod's actions should cause us to ask ourselves this morning, what is our response to the Word of God when we're confronted with sin? Herod ignored it. Herod kind of laughed at it. It was kind of a superstitious fantasy with Herod. He kind of liked John. He kind of liked this methodology. Kindly, you see, John didn't come into town with a suit and tie and flourishing shoes. You know the dress John wore. It's recorded back there in Matthew. Herod's kindly appealed to this kind of, this kind of religious stuff. He, he kind of liked the way John handled himself, except now John got very personal, and that didn't set very well with Herod. But still, Herod didn't kill him because of that. But it's in this relationship now that things begin to unfold. Harry ignored God's Word. And the text plainly says in verse 5 that he feared the multitude. Proverbs 29, 25 said, The fear of man bringeth a snare. And it did for Herod. His conscience is not tenderized by the Word of God. His heart is not convicted by the Word of God. He responded to the Word of God like most people respond to the Word of God on any average Sunday morning. They hear it. They kind of like the preacher. They're kind of mesmerized by the way he does, the methodology of how he delivers. They appreciate his study and his efforts. But don't think for a moment that we're going to let that Word prick our conscience and that we're going to repent of anything or come clean with God. The kingdom of God is still advancing, and it's advancing through the Word of God. And when men hear the Word of God in this day and age, just like in John's day and age and Herod's day and age, when men hear the Word of God and they do not respond properly to the Word of God, the Word of God hardens their heart. And then like Herod, he stood right there before Calvary in the shadows of the cross, and he's still inquiring. But the Son of God has nothing to say to him. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Harden not your heart, as in the Old Testament provocation. Are we sensitive when we realize that we've disobeyed God's Word? Do we accept being corrected for our own eternal good in God's glory? Or do we reject the counsel of those who love us and those who speak the truth to us? That's what's happening here, and that's what happenings in the kingdoms of this world. That's the role that Herod plays just on a minimal scale in the message this morning. Herod living and dying for his own kingdom. This world is not worth living for and this world is not worth dying for. I'm not talking about 
Christ dying for the unsaved world. I'm talking about you living and dying for what you can get and gain in this world. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Now look at verse 6 through 12. At John who lived and John who died for the kingdom of God, for the truth. Verse 6 through 12, we have a horrible account of the murder of John the Baptist. Sometimes you may watch a documentary or a crime report or something of, of an unsolved mystery or an unsolved murder or a cold case and all the details are placed out. And even still to this day, our world still has enough integrity left on it that oftentimes they block out the pictures and well, they should. And they maybe leave out certain things because they're too gruesome and too, uh, too hard to handle. Well, Matthew tells us just like it was. We have the account of the murder of John the Baptist. And of all the things in this story, verse 10 is the most shocking to me. Read these words carefully and do not miss what is happening here. And he sent and beheaded John the Baptist in prison. You say, why are you so shocked that Herod would do this? Why are you so shocked that he would kill John the Baptist in this manner? What is it about verse 10 that is so shocking? It's not what Herod did, nor is it how Herod did it. What's so shocking is how God allowed it. God did not stop this. God did not prevent this. Remember, I'm speaking this morning about John the Baptist of whom Jesus said in Matthew 11 11, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. This is God's choice servant on the face of the earth at this particular time, excluding, of course, His own Son, Jesus Christ, in regards to even the twelve that are out ministering now. There's none greater, Jesus said out of His own mouth, on the face of the earth than John the Baptist. And God allows Herod to do this to him. Brother, it erases this mentality of the health and wealth gospel, and I mention this often. I know it's like a broke record to you, but I'm telling you the core of what's being preached across this land is that if you come to Jesus and give Him your heart, you'll never suffer, you'll never be persecuted, you'll never have anything but health and wealth and happiness and gladness. I'm telling you, John the Baptist preached the Word of God. He did nothing but the will of God, and he lost his head over it in this world because God in His mysterious and sovereign way that is part of the way that God advances His kingdom. The book we hold in our hands, the Word of God that you read on your tablet or phone this morning, that book is saturated with the blood of martyrs. That book is saturated with men and women who have given their life for the cause of Christ. You and I have the gospel this morning because men and women like John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, and many others gave themselves totally to the kingdom of God. They lived for it and they died for it. God's faithful servant, the man who baptized Jesus, the man who stood on the banks of the Jordan River and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, the imprisoned servant of the Lord, the one man, the one man who said, I must decrease and he must increase, that man is being beheaded in verse 10 
And our loving God is allowing it. Does nothing to stop it. Beheaded at the order of a king from the request of a dancing girl. Because that's what her mama, an incestuous adulteress, wanted. And God let it happen. If anyone deserved the reward of a faithful servant, it was John. But here, life ends in a horrible way. J.C. Ryle says this, and I quote, Truly there was an event here, if ever there was an event in the world, which might make an ignorant man say, What profit is it to serve God? End quote. You remember, you heard what Brother Ryle said, didn't you? That would make an ignorant man say, what profit is it to serve God? You remember the book of Malachi in the Old Testament where they said we do all of this, we give. What profit is there? What, that word profit over there means what's our cut of the pie? What are we getting out of this? You remember Peter came to Jesus on one occasion and said, we've forsaken houses and lands and we've mother and father and we've done all of this. What shall we have therefore? You remember all of us have that mindset, what am I going to get in this world for following Christ? Well, many of us, some already have, some will in the future, will get the same thing John the Baptist got. But it's okay if it's for the kingdom of God. Now, don't take this like John's sitting down there whistling Dixie. He's saying, come on, take my head, man, I'm sold out to Jesus. That ain't what was going on in that prison. You remember in that prison? He told his disciples, go back up there and ask him, is he the one? You remember that? And his disciples went in that. You remember the word Jesus sent back? Blessed is he not offended in me. Go back and tell John the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing. John's going to die for his faith, but he's going to die. And in the last breath, he's going to make sure Christ is who he said he was. The message of the gospel that's preached by many today is Ask Jesus into your heart so He can make you a better physician, a better, a better soldier, a better farmer, a better husband, a better wife, just a better all-around kid. Christ did not die to make you a better all-around kid. He didn't die to make you a better farmer or a better lawyer. Christ died to forgive you of your sin and to make you a follower of Jesus. And I ask any of you today to open your Bible to any of the four Gospels and tell me those who started following Jesus and those who continued to follow Jesus and those who never quit following Jesus, tell me where He led them. He led them to a cross. He led them to death. Christianity is not about following some historical group of people who believe certain things. It's about following Christ. The kingdom is advancing, sometimes even in the midst of suffering and death. And God, in verse 10, lets it happen. It must have been frustrating for John to be in prison and not being able to preach repentance to not be able to prepare the way for Christ, and then finally execute it. But God's plan is perfect. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light affliction, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Matthew presents us a very sordid picture here. He shows us exactly what is happening at a birthday party. You've got the head of God's choice servant brought in on a platter at a birthday party. You've got this happening, all this wickedness and lewdness, incest and adultery. But the worst thing happening in this text is the rejection of Herod, of Herodias, and all of this crowd, their rejection of the Son of God. For while they're holding the head of John Baptist on a platter, John is rejoicing around the throne of God. Faithful servant of the Lord. Remember, church, the best things are yet to come. Remember the words of James, Count it not strange concerning the fiery trials that will try your faith. Remember, school isn't out yet. We're still at school. We are disciples. We are still learning. We are still growing. We are still maturing. Remember, we need patience. We need long-suffering. We need gentleness. We need meekness. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Not charismatic chaos inside a church. That's not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But goodness and patience and long-suffering and joy and peace. These are the things that advance the kingdom of God. And remember, no matter what any of us are going through, which is not even worthy to be placed in this context, our light affliction, whatever we're going through, is but for a moment and works a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Matthew records this story of John the Baptist to remind us that the kingdom of God advances through suffering, persecution, and death. Baptists have for decades, when anything gets rough, we've asked God to get us out of it. And we're still here. May our prayer be, O Lord, as we go through it, whatever it is we go through, May you help us to be like John the Baptist, like Paul the Apostle, and like all the others who have endured and been faithful and stayed true to the Lord. Listen to what Matthew record, or listen to what John records about the words of Jesus in John 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, now, now listen to this, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Would you have any salvation had Christ went all the way to the cross and then did not die? Well, certainly not, right? He had to die. You and I must die in this kingdom life. We must die to self. We may not all be called upon to die physically, but there's a death involved in the gospel. There's a death involved in sanctification, there's a death involved in becoming more like Christ. No matter how big we are or small we are, it has to die. This is not a coincidence. I don't particularly believe in coincidences. It's hard to, when you believe in God, to believe in coincidences. But this really was kind of staggering. I, I watch a lot of farm stuff on on YouTube, and I, I watch I watch these these guys out in out in Alabama. 
I, I watched them. It's called Triple R Farms. They're farmers. I, I, I love to watch them, the planting and, re, and all the machinery and, and stuff. And one I was watching here a while back, they were, they were planting back in the uh, earlier part of last year, they were planting soybean and corn and cotton and diff different things. And one of them made the statement about the seed. He, he said, we put the seed in the ground, it, it dies. And then he said, you know, we look forward for the fruit. And he described what was going on. He just said that in passing. Now, he said that while pulling, you know, you got a tractor, 120, 30 horsepower tractor, pulling this drill that'll drill in about, you know, two dozen holes at a time, rows and all that stuff. And then Kim and I was watching a lady we watch up in the mountains, up in Appalachia, and she was starting her garden last week inside her house in, in, in a little, a little uh, nursery in her basement. And young people, you have your parents explain what that kind of nursery is, but but she was raising it, and she had her little cups and took her little seed and just took her finger and put a little hole and then dropped it in there and covered it up. It's got to die too. Just like the one out there in the field's got to die. It doesn't matter if you're John the Baptist or if you're Joe Jones. It doesn't matter. The kingdom advances through the suffering and the death of God's people. That's just the way it is. Preacher, I didn't sign up for that. Maybe you signed up for the wrong thing. Maybe you signed up for that gospel that somebody was preaching to you, like you want all your troubles to be over, you want all your heartaches, you want to come give your life to Christ and never have to worry about sin anymore. I hope nobody ever preached that to you, but if they did, forget it. Some problems in life don't ever begin until you come to Christ. Thank God now I have the liver on the inside and someone to go with me all the way. What should we at West Lenore do in light of this truth? In light of this story, I think verse 12 is so compassionate. His disciples came. It's so matter of fact. Took up the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. The Scriptures doesn't tell us, but I would love, I think I would love to know, probably don't really need to, but there's three conjunctions in that verse which tells you three things, and, or four conjunctions, and His disciples came and took up the body and buried it. That's all pretty logical. He's died, so His disciples come, gets the body, takes it up and buries it. And went and told Jesus. wonder what they told Him. I think there's more there than just saying, hey, John got beheaded. I think they're walking in before Jesus the same way that I walked in here before you this morning with this text. Lord, we don't understand why it happened and why you allowed it to happen. But we're your servants. And like the children sang a while ago and like I read in Psalm 70, I just have to keep crying out to you to help me, to help me and deliver me and take care of me as we live in this kingdom. Christianity does not advance through prosperity and wealth. Christianity does not advance through killing our enemies. It advances through the cross and through our daily dying to self. So what should we do? You and I should tell the world about Christ. We should share the gospel, the true gospel. Not about health and wealth, but the true gospel. Quit telling people if they come to Jesus, everything down here is going to be perfect. It's not. 
That's not in the Scriptures. I have to admit, the life I'm living now is the best life I've ever lived. Not, not because of what I've got on the outside. It's because of the peace and joy that's on the inside. And then secondly, we should pray for one another. And for those who are at this very moment in prison, suffering. I understand that I drove here today uninhibited. I came in here in total freedom. I've preached today in total freedom. Unless something has drastically changed, and it could well have changed by the time I'm done. It, it was changing last Sunday while I was preaching on the sanctity of life. And our vice president was standing up quoting the Constitution and left out that every man was entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. She left out the word life on the sanctity of life day. So things could be changing, but I will probably drive home. Nobody will spit in my face. Nobody will knock on my door today and take me out and put me in prison for preaching. But I promise you this, somebody preached today that that will happen to. And Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Although that might not be happening to us here, it is happening to, to our, the body of Christ somewhere today. For many of you, it may not be a prison and it may not be a beheading, but it may be the cutting out of your heart by your children and your family and people that you have shared the gospel with and people you have raised to live for Christ who are now, like Herod, making their own decisions that they don't want this Jesus, they don't want that Christ. But know this, that in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your suffering, thank God the kingdom is advancing. Thank God, and if you read the Bible, you read the Bible, His kingdom wins. Amen? It wins. It wins. So let's remember them that are in bonds. Let's pray one for another. We must care and help those like John the Baptist who was in prison and suffering for the cause of Christ. And as we do, remember that as the kingdom advances, we who are truly His may be asked to suffer as well. Preacher, I'm not interested in that kind of salvation. Then tell God you're not interested in that. That you're interested in your own kingdom. Tell Him you don't want to be as ugly as Herod, but you don't want to be as bold as John. And I'm going to tell you what he's going to say to you because he's already wrote it in his word. He that's not with me is against me. That's what he's going to say because he's already said that in his word. And he says that to me and he says that to you. Preacher, I was looking so forward to Matthew. I was, I was looking forward to getting to where the loaves and fishes and walking on the... I was, we're going there. But remember where we're really going. We're going to a cross. But, hallelujah, on the other side there's a resurrection. Amen? And on the other side of that there's an ascension. And on the other side of that there's a return. Father, I thank you this morning for the Word of God. Lord, I thank you for this man John. Lord, thank you for who he was, what he did. Thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, I do not understand verse 10. I do not understand how you allowed it all to happen. I don't question that. But, but Lord, I just 
don't understand. I don't understand a lot of things in this world. But Lord, as J.C. Ryle said, I'm not ignorant enough, not ignorant enough to question whether it pays to serve you because I know that it does. But Lord, I need to be reminded of that occasionally. And I need help with that. I pray you'd help our church, Lord, to understand that living for you is not always easy. It's not always a bed of roses. It's not always a downhill grade. I pray for our families here this morning. Lord, I know there are, there are parents sitting here. There's grandparents sitting here in our church today. They've not been beheaded for the gospel, but Lord, their hearts have been torn apart because of the gospel. They have children, grandchildren who have turned their backs on you and walked away. They have family. Many sitting here today have friends that they used to work with or maybe even sit here in this church with who no longer claim to be a follower of Christ. Lord, you know where they are. Remind us all that our light affliction is but for a moment, but for a season, and you work a far greater work for eternity. For all these that we've just mentioned, we pray for their salvation. We pray, Lord, if they are your child, may they be reclaimed and called back into fellowship and love with you. But help each of us as the kingdom moves forward. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to serve you and worship you and do your will. If there's those here today in a sinful mess like Herod, I pray through the grace of God, they'd hear the message that John preached. They'd repent and believe and trust in you because only you can clean up that mess for the glory and the honor of God. Thank you for being our Savior this morning. Thank you for a word that reminds us that no matter how ugly our lives get, you still have compassion upon us and you care for us. And we thank you and praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.